Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Good evening, Dark Knight of the Podcast listeners. Don't be mad at Troy and I. It has been a brief minute since we've been here at sharing an episode. It's, a, it's been a hot second because the last one that we dropped on the main feed was technically a Patreon. But for those of you who were able to attend the Houston Horror Film Festival. I certainly like to think you understand why we had to step away for a moment. And I hope you had as good of a fucking time as we did. Right, Troy? Oh, absolutely. And if they attended, they absolutely know how, I mean, just a whirlwind of a weekend that whole thing was. It almost was a blur. I mean, it was nonstop from, at least I know it was nonstop from the time I got there until the event was over on Sunday. All the prep that went into preparing for the event, the the rest and, and drudgery of getting back in a normal life after the event. And yeah, I, I we had a discussion at the Houston Horror Film Festival about how we definitely missed missed our recordings. And, you know, we had broad ideas that we were going to be able to record while we were in Houston together because we only see each other, what, maybe once a year Twice if we're lucky and we're like, oh, we're going to be able to record all this stuff. No, there is absolutely no time. But if you want to head on over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast, there are a couple of really cool things from the Houston Horror Film Festival that are going to be up there. One of them is an indie horror filmmaker panel that Roger did with a fellow filmmaker uh, from Texas, William Einstone. And then the other one, guys, is a Scream Queen panel that Roger moderated with none other than Felissa Rose from Sleepaway Camp and Camille Keaton from I Spit on Your Grave. So those two panels are going to be up on our Patreon for our patrons to enjoy. So, hey, now is your chance to jump on that Patreon and, and not only get access to that, but a shit ton of bonus episodes. I really cannot believe how many fucking bonus episodes we have up there. I just, I boggles my mind. Oh my god! I will, I'd like to think that the last episode that we released by now, I'd like to think that they had a chance to base in it and get get a good savory taste of what we have to serve them. Because my god, that episode is fucking hilarious, and may I say so myself? And I will. I fucking love that fucking episode, Slumber Party Massacre. I think it's one of our funniest ones. Holy shit! So what a treat for them that they got to hear uh, a sampling an hors d'oeuvre, a mere taste of what we have to offer over at the Patreon. And I hope that motivates y'all to come on over and join us for some good times. Uh, but we're back at it. We're back in the flow of it. We just got through our major event, the Houston Horror Film Festival. It was truly a wonderful event. Troy's absolutely right. We did not have a fucking single second to ourselves to record. Shame on us for thinking we possibly would. Um, but we're back and we're ready to offer up an, a review of a film that 
I have been waiting to cover for a while. And based off of Troy's initial reactions to this film, I cannot wait to get into this title with him because I think there's going to be a lot of opinions that are thrown out over this title. What do you think, Troy? This is a title. I mean, guys, if you go back to our early, early episodes, this is an, I'm not, I'm not talking about just our early, early episodes on our regular feed, but even our early Patreon episodes. This is a title that Roger has brought up numerous times, numerous times to the point where I was rather embarrassed and ashamed to finally admit that I'd never seen it. Because I was like, oh my God, this this movie has such a significance to Roger. And here I am. I've never seen the damn thing. Um, but it, it gave me the opportunity to see it. But you have mentioned this film probably more than any other film that I can think of on, our, on the course of our podcasting together. And it is none other than 13 Ghosts. The 2001 remake. Let's be clear. Yes. The 2001 remake, because this is a remake of, of a William Castle-directed film from 1960 uh, that was written by Rob White. Um, and it is, you know, similar and mostly title only. There's a few elements that are, are also tied in to the remake, including what was the incorporation of the special, like, 3D glasses that they included with the 1960s, the original film, as part of the gag. And so there's this whole uh, element of of glasses being worn by characters in the film to see the ghost. Same concept as the gag that was included with the original film, which is a really fun tie-in. But overall, this film is very much its own its own thing. And what a thing it is. And this film, I've got to say, like, yes, this is a title I have brought up so many times, and there's a good reason for it. This film holds the prestigious title as being the first ever DVD that I purchased for myself. Well, technically I made my grandmother buy it for me. We are in Florida on vacation. She said I could have one thing. I could take one thing home from Florida as a souvenir and I picked this fucking DVD and she was so pissed off about it because the cover art even made it like pretty clear. Like this is going to be a real like, you know, violent, gory, spooky, kooky kind of wild good time and all the imagery that you see on it just looks like it's going to be really fucking violent and really over the top and really gratuitous and um and that it is you know that it is and so this film came out in 2001 uh, i would have been a sophomore in high school at this time like what an important influential time for me as a fan of horror and this was like i said the first dvd in general that i ever owned not just not just of the genre but my first dvd um, that I selected for myself. And so this movie, for some reason, had a, he like, had a huge impression on me, uh, left a really big impact. And while there are certain elements of this film that I will be the first to say do not withstand the test of time, <laughs> there are aspects of this movie that I, I fucking adore. And I, I will celebrate this title to my very last dying breath because I, I have such a good time watching it. But is it a good movie? I mean, I guess that's what the review is for. Um, but Troy, I'm so curious to hear because, yeah, you've never seen it. I've talked about it all. And I'm really curious to hear your takeaway from this film. Like, I mean, give me something. Give me something to go off of to start because I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. Okay, if I had to say, if I had to use one word right now, if you're like, Troy, gun to your head, what is one word that you would use to describe this film? <laughs> to describe the 2001 my, my word is obnoxious. Oh, oh, oh yeah 
um, <laughs> obnoxious in in a lot of ways. Obnoxious with that uh, uh, heavy handed, frenzied, hard cutting that is is very jarring. That was popular, I guess, around this time. Um, it, it's 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 in other films, but in this one, it's just so prominent and so heavy handed. The the sound, the sound in this film. You know, I tried to watch the film, and there were moments when the sound would peak so high, I'd have to turn the volume down. I mean, the sound is all over the place, and the hammy, 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 hammy performances. You got Mister Oscar winner F. Murray Abraham in this film. Uh, why he signed on for this? I don't know. Um, he does sort of bring a level of, I guess, class to the film, but it's his performance is very much m- seems like catered to the stage instead of film. And, you know, you got Matthew Lillard. Come on, we love Matthew Lillard. But uh, yes. some of his line delivery in this film had me cringing. It's like Stu Mocker dialed up 2000 volts in, in some scenes. And it just becomes, like I said, it becomes obnoxious. The only pause, I mean, okay, there are good things about the film. I mean, you just, you just, you just had me, you know, you wanted my initial impression. One good thing about the film is at least those annoying fucking kids disappear through most of it. Because I guarantee you, Roger, when I started watching this film, that little fucking boy on that fucking scooter rolling around the fucking house, I'm like, if I have to watch this, for 90 minutes, this little fucking boy and his <laughs> obnoxious little voice, uh, his little doe eyes that he's trying to do to make himself look cute, I'm going to shoot myself. Luckily, he disappears into the basement for a good majority of the film. Shannon Elizabeth, come on. You love Shannon Elizabeth. She's in Scary Movie, you know, probably her her most famous you know role or, or American Pie. Here she is kind of given nothing really to do. And I got to tell you, I was when I first started watching the film, I guess, you know, that opening scene was so that opening scene is so just like loud and just there's a shit ton going on. And I think I was just trying to recover from from that. Just the 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 loudness, the, the vivaciousness of that opening scene that then when it transitioned into the into the, you know, normal scene with. Uh, Arthur and his children, I guess I spaced it out because for like a half, this was my first viewing Roger for half the movie. I swear to God, (laughs) people could call me stupid. I don't know how I missed this. I thought that Shannon Elizabeth was supposed to be his wife. And I kept thinking, what the fuck would they cast Shannon Elizabeth to play Tony Shalhoub's wife for? It even dawned on me until the second time I watched it. It was his fucking daughter. I'm like, Oh God, I feel like a fucking idiot, but I guess that's how, much invested I was in the film. I don't know. Uh, listen, all of your points here, Troy, are valid, including Shannon Elizabeth and her mysterious age. Is she fifteen? Is she thirty-five? Like I don't know. I don't know how old she's supposed to be. That is the, yes, I think that has to do with because when she's introduced, she's doing the dishes and they're talking very lovingly. And I guess okay, the second time I watched, I. I you know, try to pay attention more. So I heard the, I heard the voiceover that fucking hallmarky gag me with a spoon voiceover at the beginning. That is so like, you couldn't try to sacker and sweet something so heavy handed. <laughs> if you tried, do you know what I'm talking about? I, I do, but Troy, you're giving it all away. We got it. Listen, we're basically jumping on into it at this point. <laughs> I feel like we just need to rip off our clothes and jump in the pool. Um, before we do that real quick, Let's throw out the fucking um, five-star reviews. We have had a couple five-star reviews recently, but we need 
a couple of actual reviews. Yeah, I'm 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 worked up getting ready to talk about this film, so I'm going to get worked up about these five. You tell them, you tell them, Troy. I am telling. We are so close to fifty. Go to if you listen on Apple Podcasts, guys. Just scroll, find us, Dark Knight of the Podcast. Scroll down, click those little five stars. (laughs) We're so close, so close to fifty. We're not even like we're not even asking pleasantly anymore. We're like demanding it. We're literally sitting here, Troy. We're telling our listeners, we're like, you go fucking leave those five star reviews. But guys, we love you. But come on now. Yeah, you know what? If you you can, you don't even have to write a review. But if you want to write a review, we will give you a shout out. If there's a specific question that you want to ask us, and you want to write it in the review, or if there's a specific film that you would love to see us covered, and you want to write us write it in the review, do that because the reviews do help. They do help because they help people find the podcast if they're searching for horror movie podcasts and the ones that have the more ratings pop populate higher. You don't want us to disappear for another month, so get your asses in gear and hit that five stars or we're not coming back. And our next film that we're going to cover, we'll tell you at the end, you're going to be salivating for. So, <laughs> just, just like us. But right now, Troy, I'm salivating for this fucking review of 13 Ghosts, directed, <laughs> by, <laughs> directed by Steve Beck, who I have to say... I think it makes a lot of sense that the only other film that Steve Beck directed was the 2002 ghost film, Ghost Ship. When I look at this film and I look at Ghost Ship, I see a lot of similarities overall. Um, A lot. What do you think? It makes sense that you, when you mentioned it, it does make sense. And the two films actually very much include a very well done, like body splitting in half, just two, just two different directions, right? In Ghost Ship, the captain's head slides off horizontally. And in this one, the poor lawyer gets sliced in half vertically. So really, he, he must have a thing with bodies being split in half because Ghost Ship, I, I think m- most people only know Ghost Ship for the opening scene because let's be honest, the rest of the film is not good. I mean, bless Juliana Margulies' heart, but she can't carry a, a film like like Ghost Ship. She's great on ER, but I don't want to. I don't want to see her wandering around a boat for ninety minutes. It's she's not that engaging. This film, I will say, much more watchable than Ghost Ship. I think people watch opening scene of Ghost Ship and shut it off and are are perfectly fine with that. This film is watchable. And like I said, there are a lot of good things with the film, and the film really tries to hook you in right away with that opening scene, um, which is just a barrage at a what looks like a junkyard, right? It is a junkyard, and you get fucking buses and uh, four 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 by four trucks piling, and with all these people coming out with equipment, and, and you get Cyrus. Criticos, who played by F. F. Marie Abraham, who is an Oscar-winning actor. Actor, believe it or not, he won an Oscar for uh, Amadeus back in like '87, I believe '86 or '87. Um, so, he, like I said, he adds a lot of class to the to the film. It's just kind of a I don't know, kind of a jarring performance. I, I don't know what it is about him that kind of just doesn't work for me. And it, it's right away, Roger. It's right away, like the first words out of his mouth. I'm like, this character does not really work for me. And I, I can't put my finger on it. I know he's tr- he's he's trying to be menacing um, and whatnot. But to me, it just comes off as very like, just like I said earlier, like stagey. 
and I just couldn't really buy it. And then you get Matthew Lillard, who is just hamming it up, just scree- slobbered, screaming his lines. Um, he's supposed to be the psychic who can has is in very is in tune with dead people, right? He he knows where ghosts and spirits live. So they're hunting this ghost. This is all the opening scene. They're hunting this ghost. It's in the junker. This is the um. What ghost is this? This is um the juggernaut. The juggernaut. Yes. And I will say, when you see a glimpse of this ghost, it's pretty well done. In some shots, you can definitely tell it looks a little latexy. But I will say. For a film called 13 Ghosts, the, the most positive aspect of the film are the ghosts. It, it's interesting that we are covering this now because it was just recently announced that they're making this into a television series. Don't you understand why, though? Like, after seeing this film and, like, just the tidbits of information you get on the ghosts, doesn't it kind of intrigue you uh, whether or not they're going to pursue that further? Because I think their backstories are more more entertaining, honestly, than anything else here. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That obese child and that tiny mother. Yes, I need to know about them. I don't, I think. (laughs) Troy, that's you and I. That's you and me this Halloween. I'm telling you right now. (laughs) You and me is, you're the mom and I'm the obese child. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, but these, yeah, these ghosts. Again, the most intriguing part of the film. Some of them you, you barely get any glimpse of even like that bound woman. I don't even think you see her, but yes. So I backpelling, I'm glad they're making a series because I really do hope they explore the backstories of these ghosts. I think I would have enjoyed the film a lot more if it was a different set of characters. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, one thing I take away from this film after like revisiting it after so much time after knowing this film so well is like, I definitely am aware of the fact that it almost feels like they tried to take that camp from the 1960s film and like that, just the overall style of performance from that era and inject it into a very early 2000s piece of cinema. And it just doesn't, it doesn't mesh. Um, The characters do feel very unrealistic and that, that goes for all of them. It's not even that I would say the writing is necessarily bad. It's just the overall direction that they were given. I'm going beyond the writing. I'm saying that I feel like, you know, and this may fall on the director in this situation. You know, you've got Tony Shalhoub, who's fucking monk and everybody fucking loved him for multitudes of years in that role. And he can definitely like, you know, carry a project and he's a good actor. Like you said, F. Murray Abraham is a is an award-winning actor. These are capable actors, but I feel like they were directed to be bigger, go bigger. Look at look at the character of Maggie as played by Rod Digger. Like, like look at the character. Like she seriously, she is the most token character of color I can think of from that, like from a horror movie of that era. They really like lean into like the black exploitation almost of it, which it that does not hold up. You know, the, the approach to that character, at least she stands steps up to be a kind of a badass at the end and save the day. But still like the approach to these characters just feels very dated. Um and they don't feel relatable. Their situations, their emotions, the journeys they're going through, you know, even Tony Shalhoub, when he realizes his kids are in danger, it feels very honed in. And so, I mean, yeah, the script ain't perfect, but I think it's, it falls back more than anything. I think on the direction 
here because everybody is consistently unnatural in their roles. Yeah. And my point about that opening credit uh, voiceover montage that we're getting is the fact that it is hammering home that this is supposed to be such a close knit ideal family. And some of the stuff you hear them saying is just like, like you hear Shannon and Elizabeth tell Bobby they're outside playing. She's like, Oh, you're the best little brother ever. Like seriously, what 30 year old or however old she's supposed to be is going to literally say that to them. But all this, if you listen to the voiceover, it's all very like, it's like, it's like they're spoon feeding you. Oh, look how much this family loves each other. Oh, they're the all of them. They, they, they love each other. Cause you hear Tony Shalhoub tell his wife, Oh, you're the best wife I could ever ask for. I would be so lost without you. These are real things that are being said over this voiceover. So instead of like giving us any sort of like flashbacks or any sort of small little opening where we see the family interact together as a family before the mother died. Because another thing they do that I found quite questionable is that we don't, we, we find out the mother died in a house fire through this opening credit voiceover. And it's, it's so dramatic. Like you hear someone saying the fire alarm's going off. Oh, where's mom? We can't find mom. We got to go back in the house for mom. And then you hear the little boy crying. Oh, mommy burned to death. And then you hear him at the feet. It's like, so like that is, that is not how you, <laughs> you, you build any sort of connection or emotion in a film. You know, film is showing, not telling the first Two minutes of this film is telling the audience everything that they're supposed to know. There's no showing at all. So by the time you get to the family dynamic, it doesn't work. And that's what I said. That's why I was so confused the first time I watched it. I thought that Shannon Elizabeth was the wife. It was just all over the place. There's no real family dynamic going on in this film at all. Like they literally all interact like this was their first day on set. They had no interaction with each other anytime. And the camera started rolling. I, I absolutely agree on that note, to be honest. As somebody who enjoys this film, this is something that I, I did take away from this viewing. The, the characterization is just really spotty. And even the, even the presence of the character of, of Maggie, who is supposed to be like their in-home nanny. But like, how can this family afford this nanny? <laughs> like, they, they are financially struggling. <laughs> I am so confused. Yes, because they're talking about how they can't even pay their bills. And when the when when uh, he says the lawyer is uh, shows up to the apartment, her is like, "Oh, I thought where credit was, you know, fixed." And you know, he's making comments about, "Oh, we can't afford a bigger place." They're like crammed into this like little one bedroom apartment, but they have a nanny. He's a teacher. He's a math teacher, right? How is he affording a fucking nanny? And you're trying to tell me that Shannon Elizabeth is forty seven. She's she she's perfectly capable. And I, I was so confused. And don't get me wrong. I like the Maggie character just fine. I actually, I mean, I I, I see 100% what you're saying about the, uh, she's the token character. Because she, her, let's be honest, her primary purpose in the film is to make wisecracks. Right? That's all. She, she does it well. Yeah. She does it well, but that is all. She does it well. She does. It's all she does. Um, But like, I was so confused by her presence in the film as like a nanny to a a grown woman. (laughs) 
grown woman who later is sexually exploited as her breasts are ripped open by a ghost. Like, I don't know how to feel about this character. Is she, again, like, are you trying to tell me that busty Shannon Elizabeth is 14 years old and telling her little brother, like, oh, you're the best little brother ever. I have the exact same note, that same thing. Like, it's so fucking unnatural. And I could go on about this forever. I do want to backtrack really quick, though, and acknowledge, like, we didn't even really get to the conclusion of the the scene prior, like the sequence in the graveyard. No, it's great. There are some, it's just, it's sheer chaos. And I like it. I like the visuals of it. I love the visuals of all of the different men being, like, brutally, brutally slammed into cars. There's that poor dude that gets, like, sucked into the trunk and, and busted in half. You do get the moment when Cyrus also pulls out Kalina and her partner just randomly. I don't know. The only reason this was done Rogers so that we knew who she was later in the film. There's no purpose for this particular moment in this opening scene where he pulls him out. It's like, Oh, I'll show you. Oh, let's talk about the character of Kalina for a moment. And Beth Davids always welcome in my house. Miss honey from Matilda always welcome. But this role, I don't think is necessarily the role that I would envision for her. The character of Kalina, I think, is kind of a shitty role, regardless of who plays her. Um, you have a really shocking revelation with this character pretty like late into the film, and it goes completely against everything you thought she stood for, and it leaves you with a really sour taste in your mouth. And she's billed, like she's second billed. If you look at like, you know, all the promotional material and everything, like she's She's considered one of the leads, but her presence almost feels like an afterthought. And this, you're right, this whole moment, like she's brought out, she's introduced, and then of course things go awry. The ghost starts killing all these people, and all these other people end up dead. So, and then all these people are dying, and you realize, like, amongst them, that includes her partner. And I, I actually have a theory that she maybe was involved with this, you know, based off of the revelation that ends up happening. I'm curious if the ghost got to her partner, if she did. Um, but regardless, he ends up dying. And then you also have this moment where then you realize, oh, fuck, Cyrus is also a victim to this ghost because in the midst of all the chaos, one of the stacks of cars gets knocked over because you are in this amazing, this very effective, like, auto graveyard where you have stacks of vehicles very much like the the brave little toaster you know you got all these cars stacked up it's pretty fucking dramatic yeah it kind of reminded me of nightmare on elm street 3 too yeah yeah and they, yeah the conclusion in nightmare on elm street 3 yeah with a junkyard yeah well and they were really smart to use this location because after this you are strictly in a glass house for the rest of the movie and it's it's good that they started on something bold um but yeah so you do realize that cyrus has perished apparently, um, by having a piece of metal sliced through his throat, um, and, and thus he is now dead, or so we are led to believe. Honestly, I, I have so many questions about how this is pulled off, what you end up learning about this character. Questions, I still to this day, I don't know for sure, and I've been watching this movie for, what, 20 fucking years now. See, and I knew I knew that you knew this film, so I was like, I was excited because I was like, maybe Roger knows what the fuck is going on in this film because I have the exact same questions that you brought up a yes, the Kalina character, her revelation halfway through the film comes out of literally nowhere, especially based on this first introduction that you get of her, where she is very, very hostile 
uh, towards Sarah Sheevan, like spits at him, and she's like, "Who are you to play God? Can we?" Okay, so real the, the whole basis of this thing is Cyrus is trying to um, catch ghosts. He's trying to catch basically tw- thirteen different ghosts so that he can build this house into like a a machine. It's 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 elaborated on later, and we'll get to that because it's mentioned like thirty times. But that's the whole purpose of this opening scene is that he's trying to catch the last ghost, the juggernaut. And if things go awry, he ends up being killed, quote unquote. Matthew Lillard's there. He is his sidekick. Dennis is his name, is the character's name, who is, like I said, psychic and is able to help Cyrus locate these ghosts. That's his own. That's kind of his main purpose. Uh, and after this opening scene, we think Cyrus is dead. It cuts to that voiceover opening credits that I just roll my eyes so hard at. Because oh God, uh, and then then we get some int- we get introduced to the family. We get the little boy Bobby, who apparently Ugh. yes, <laughs> um, I, you know what? Yes, I I was confused by see. There's no like consistency through these characters because when he's introduced, he is like pretending to do a tr- like a he's ahead of his time, Roger. This little boy, this little fucker is way ahead of his time because he this he's the first podcaster. he is the first podcaster. This was 2001. This little fucker had a true crime podcast going on, talking about people fi- being found decapitated. And I thought, okay, cool little trait for this little boy, but it goes nowhere. Yeah, it it really is just used to simply ensure that he has a microphone on him, so there can be an audio gag that's briefly used later. Um, that, that comes up for a moment. His microphone picks up one of the, the voices of one of the ghosts. Other than that, you never explore this again. He has one moment in the car where he's recording some stuff about gore and shit like that, I think. But other than that, yeah, they don't ever really bring it up. It's such a loose character trait to throw out there. Um, but at least he has one, unlike Shannon Elizabeth, whose Kathy doesn't have Anything. I think the worst aspect of the, like, you know, all the characters and how they're written is the character of Kathy genuinely is not given anything to do other than just be a bystander to other people's events. Shannon and Shannon Elizabeth in this film, and we, we say it jokingly, but it, I'm being serious. She looks like she's 35, right? But they, they make her reactions to everything be in line with like, a 13 year old girl. Right. Am I right? Like her wide eyed every time she sees something. Oh, it's so cool. Oh my God. It just, it's weird. It's really, and in the meantime, you're right. Her big old titties are all poofed up in her bra. I mean, she's wearing a, a, a fucking tight little top and yeah. And then, so it's just like, what are we supposed to be? What is this character? I don't, I don't get it. I also think it's funny that they try to make it, Give the audience the impression, oh, look how hip this family is because the little brother can call his sister a slut. And the dad just laughs and jokes around because they have that cool of a relationship. It's just, it's all so like heavy handed. And then this random nanny just there who's, who isn't even cooking. I mean, she's sitting at the table with her curlers in her hair. Shannon Elizabeth, the what one. What is she doing? I don't know. Shannon Elizabeth's <laughs> the one that's doing the dishes. She's sitting there at the uh, dining room table eating cereal with her fucking hair and rollers. Well, and Shane Elizabeth even says, she's like, have you tasted her cooking? I'm like, then why the fuck? What is this woman doing squatting in your home? Like, is she, she's not doing her job. I'll say that much. And does she live with them? I'm assuming she just lives in. <laughs> is she, but she's quick to tell everybody that that's not, I'm not the wife. I'm not the wife. Oh no. I mean, 
you know what, girl, whatever you got to do to pay the bills, I guess. But come on now. Um, and, and very, very quickly, like, I think you were really right to say earlier in that transitional montage that happened. The fact that we don't get any, like, exposition or background in the sense of actually seeing proper sequences, proper scenes of these characters together, you are, like, so briefly introduced to them and they're thrown right into the situation at hand. The, you know, what leads to the the them being involved with the 13 ghosts in general. Like, you are thrown right into it. You're barely given anything at all. You have this really brief scene, and then you fucking have the um, the the lawyer show up at their door, and, and boom, you're like, and the story is moving. I do appreciate that the pacing is fast. Like, I do like that, but you lose so much character development. The, yeah, you're right. The pacing is fine for the film. Like, I was never bored at all. I think certain things made me lose interest in terms of like like i said the characters and just like things that were happening so fast and like i said the the editing in this film god damn you know i i'm not a fan of that 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 choppy fast editing that was a thing thank god it's not anymore but god this film is probably the worst um offender of, of that type of editing that i've ever seen in my life and it just it goes it goes overboard um but Yes. So the lawyer, this lawyer shows up. Moss is his name, right? Long story short, he's basically there to play them a video from Cyrus because Arthur is Cyrus's only living relative. Cyrus is his uncle. So we find out that basically Cyrus has willed his house to Arthur. And he makes a point to say this is a very special house. It's a one of a kind house. And you're the sole beneficiary. And you're right. Very next scene, they're driving to the house. I mean, they are on their fucking way. And we do get, we do have a a couple of montages in this film that I really do enjoy. And this specific montage here, when they start driving to the house and you got, you get like inner cuts of Kalina planning some kind of battle. I mean, she's going into war. She's, grabbing dynamite sticks. She's grabbing all kinds of shit. She's getting ready for something. But you do have this really great, very 2000s, but still really great track called Excess by Tricky, featuring one Alanis Morissette singing the chorus. Um, and I, I find this track to be really, like, effective in, like, building up, like, the, oh, and we're off, like, and we're moving. Like, it's got this really moody, like, mechanical, almost like a nine-inch nails, kind of that grungy sound to it. And I do think it perfectly, like, sets the tone for what's to come. I really enjoy, like, this moment of building up as they're on their way to the house and it's eventually revealed. Well, well, good. The good that one song in the film, at least, is fitting because the closing credits song... <laughs> <laughs> it makes no sense in terms of the film. <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> I can't wait. I cannot wait to get to the, the final note on this film because I have so many thoughts. On uh, okay, digress. I digress. I digress. But yes, you get this moment where they do arrive at the house and you get the first visual of it. And the exterior... There's like a very CGI-ish kind of look to it. Like it's not like it looks awful, but like it just, it looks like you only ever see the exterior of the house really from like one angle. And it's always the same like wide shot of it. It's not until you get inside the house that it makes an actual impression. 
because once you get into the house, it, it does become like a character in the film. It's such a prominent element of the film that it, it is one of the major playing factors of everything that happens. Well, yeah, they get to the house and guess who's there disguised as a electrician? None other than Matthew Lillard, Dennis, who says that the neighborhood has a power outage and he is there to fix it. And uh, the lawyer immediately is like, nope, sorry, you can't come in. However, Arthur is like, yeah, you can. I'm the new owner. Come on in. Let's get the power back on. So that is how Dennis is very easily able to get into this house. Let's talk about this house for a second. Roger, yes, I agree with you. Set as a as a set piece, amazing. You know, there's so much detail. As an actual like house that <laughs> somebody would want to live in, I'm not really buying it. Oh, I'd hate it. Well, first of all, there's absolutely no privacy. Uh, this house is made completely of glass and steel, and there are rooms that you look through and you just, I mean, you see everything. So it's one of those things where, you know, unless it's got like frosted cubed glass, like some of the bathrooms have that, like you're looking through and you're seeing all kinds of shit. Um, and so I don't know how, how manageable that would be for the average everyday person to live in that glass house, but it makes quite an impression. I mean, it's very grand. I mean, just from a logistical standpoint, like it doesn't like I could, I would never feel like at home in that house. You know, it, it, it's all glass. The floors are glass. The walls are glass. Everything's glass. You know, I know they keep trying to give the impression that the house is huge, which they do a really good job. I think of accomplishing that, but in a sense, like the geography of the house, a lot of times doesn't make sense. It seems like hallways can just appear out of nowhere or levels, upper levels and lower levels can appear out of nowhere. There's like no real like sense of solidarity in terms of this house and how it's laid out. It's just like willy nilly, wherever they need to go, they can go. And however long a hallway needs to be, it can be that long. Uh, it was a little, I was a little thrown off by that respect, but yeah, I just can't buy that somebody would like want to live in this house just from a perspective it just doesn't feel like a house everything's glass how the fuck are you going to clean that motherfucker oh my god can you imagine how much windex these people must go through living in this house um but i think more than anything the like the downside of the house is you're absolutely right it's disorienting because it is all glass and you do get really amazing shots like looking through the glass and as the as as things start to move along and the house actually starts shifting and moving and you have these metal panels moving, it is really exciting to watch. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to trash the house as a prop or a, a set piece at all. I am going to say that you're exactly right in saying that, especially as you start to build towards the finale, it, it just, it becomes disorienting. Like if there are times that I, I am convinced that they are reusing certain shots and bits of footage of the ghosts, there are times that it doesn't feel like the people are reacting to a shot that would technically be across from them. It looks like they kind of just cut in shots that they had and, you know, and, and the ghosts look good, but sometimes it just like, it feels very um, not connected. It, it doesn't feel completely like it jives, but it looks great. And, and it really makes a great impression, especially I think on a first time viewer, I, I, I would think that, you know, when you saw this, like as an entity, as a, as a set piece, is it not like kind of in it's a league of its own? Like I can't think of anything else 
in a horror movie or anything along these lines that looks quite as effective or quite as just unique as this house. Oh, no, I agree. I mean, it's it's a it's a stellar, stellar set piece, particularly for a horror film. I mean, it looks great. And I, I love the, the like the moving parts of it and everything. Like I said, just as just from a perspective of like, oh, would I live there? Absolutely fucking not. Uh, but, you know, they get into the house. And I mean, even in the inside of the house, Roger, it's like a fucking museum. It doesn't even seem like a home. There's nothing homey about it. It's, you know, there's just artifacts. There's swords. There's you know, metal ornaments. There's all kinds of shit in this house. And, you know, Dennis immediately wants to get to the basement because he's like, I need to get to the basement so I can get the hell out of here. In the meantime, why the fuck would you let that little fucking Bobby bring his scooter into a glass house and ride around like a fucking banshee? I mean, this child, the the problem with this child is like, he starts off, then he ain't the strongest link in the film. He, st- he starts off kind of weak to begin with. But as the movie goes on, he becomes significantly more obnoxious. And his worst moment is that final moment where he's sitting on the middle of that fucking metal circular thing screaming, Daddy, help us! Like, he just gets so fucking annoying by the end of the movie. You're right. Thank God he disappears for the period of time that he does because he's gone for a while. But this child is causing mischief and turmoil everywhere he goes. He's riding that fucking scooter. He's not listening to people. He's messing with shit. He's grabbing swords. I can't stand it. <laughs> I don't think you can stand any kid in a horror movie. <laughs> I, I, I hate children. Let's make it known, everyone. And if you have children, no offense to them. I'm sure they're lovely. I fucking hate kids. <laughs> Yeah, but the, yeah, I mean, it, it just so happens that 99% of kids in horror films are obnoxious. You know, I, I can think of very few that are like, oh, okay, I like this kid. Maybe Carol Ann from Poltergeist. Okay, whatever. But no, Moss takes Arthur to sign some papers to basically take ownership of the house. Dennis is, in the meantime, he's he's wandering around the basement. He's starting to have his psychic pangs and his, his psychic vision. And... Arthur is trying to explain to Moss that, you know what, I'm just a math teacher. I'm poor, but I can afford a nanny. I don't think we can afford the taxes. And Moss is like, you know what, Cyrus was a genius with money. You will never have to worry about money again. And Dennis, down in the basement, he, he puts on these glasses. And you mentioned the glasses earlier on in the in the um, in the review here, and they do play a very prominent part of the film. They there's nothing special about these glasses. They look like they're they look they look like clear goggles you buy at like the Home Depot to to rip out a shower or something. But you put them on, and apparently it allows you to see the ghosts. Now Dennis knows this already, right? Because he worked with Cyrus, so he has a pair of these glasses. So he puts them on because he's trying to figure out like, why is Cyrus, you know, what is his deal with leaving this house that was so important to him personally? Why is he leaving it to this, his, his random, you know, nephew. So he goes down the basement, he puts the glasses on and this is when we get the first glimpse of the ghosts, some of the ghosts anyway. You see some of them, but one thing I do like about the movie is it manages to consistently feel fresh because as the movie progresses, you are getting introduced to more and more of the ghosts. And yes, some of the ghosts don't have as much screen time as others, um, but you do get the idea that they're being released like one after another. Um, and so there's a natural progression to the ghosts being unleashed. And so you see a couple of them. You see one, the Torn Prince, 
who is um, uh, part, like a, he, part of his face is just absolutely like destroyed. And you see, he actually, there's a, like a prop of his car flipped over in his cell because they're all like trapped, trapped in these glass boxes. These boxes, by the way, are covered in incantation spells. There's a whole lot of shit you got to keep up with with this goddamn fucking movie. But these got, they got these goddamn fucking boxes. They lowered one earlier in the, the junkyard. That's how they trap the juggernaut. So they bring these boxes in. They're covered in, in Latin. These spells are what keep the ghosts trapped inside of the boxes. And then he would, like, place the boxes inside the basement so all of the ghosts start collected down there. And so each ghost is trapped in its own individual cage. I think it's a really cool setup. But you get all these fucking ghosts in these boxes. And then, of course, one by one, they're being released. It keeps things fucking exciting. So you see... The Torn Prince, he's all fucking wrecked. Uh, he's got a baseball bat. He's from like the 1950s. I think that's kind of cool. And then you've got the Angry Princess, whom is my favorite. She's just fucking bare ass naked the whole fucking time, walking around with her big old plastic knockers, <laughs> unable to move. They're so fucking taut. They're just, they're just still. They're like, they're like brimming water balloons. They're so fucking tight and taut. Yeah, my note says they're cement boobs because, yeah, they literally do not move at all. But I love that about her. <laughs> and she's covering these cuts. She's got this cut running right down the middle of her areola. I fucking love it. And I do think that the, the design on all of these ghosts is fantastic. But there's something about the angry princess that has, has managed to transition over into, like, the pop culture psyche. You see so many, um, like, fan recreations of, her, of the visual. You see a lot of, like, artistic interpretations we saw one at houston horror film festival an artistic rendering of her there um and there's just something about her it is the fact i think that she's naked and like there is a sexiness to her but it's also so grotesque and her look is still very very creepy she's just this naked girl with a fucking knife i mean it works there's something fucking creepy about her She's definitely creepy she's a standout ghost mainly because like you said she's naked but um the one thing that i wish was toned down a little bit with her was the the it seems with her it's you is where you get most of the heavy fast choppy editing effects that surround her so it, it's a little like jarring every time she's on screen because you, you you know those fast edits are coming and it's just like oh those fast cuts are coming and it's like no not anymore and um no but the, yeah very interesting that you you get like the sense that she committed suicide there's this whole i think she probably has the most fleshed out story maybe and it's even it's not even that fleshed out but you can kind of gather what happened to her based on some scenes coming up like when when she's in the bathroom with shannon elizabeth's character but but all the ghosts are, are quite intriguing like that little boy with the, the, the um the firstborn son with the arrow through his head he's quite creepy he's a creepy little fucker huh well i'll say one of the most intriguing aspects of this film is actually and i don't i don't know i doubt you've ever seen this but uh, fans of the film know about this the dvd has an amazing bonus feature it's probably one of the best bonus features i've ever seen and this is a big part of my fandom with this film they have a bonus feature that gives you an in-depth backstory for every single 
one of the, the black zodiac ghosts because they're all part of what is called the black zodiac. They all represent a specific uh, piece to the puzzle, if you will, for, for creating this, what is this massive incantation that's going to happen, which is an intriguing in its concept, but it gets really fucking bloated. But yeah, this DVD bonus feature gives you a really phenomenal uh, breakdown of each character's backstory, what happened to them, how they died, and why they're angry. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's narrated by F. Murray Abraham, too, so it sounds fucking awesome. But yeah, it, it, it's just, it's this really, really phenomenal piece that tells you, like her backstory, for example, her character in this world was working uh, at, she was like the assistant to a plastic surgeon, and she became addicted to the surgery. And she became so self-obsessed that she didn't think that she would ever be pretty enough. And so she took like one of the scalpels and she actually did surgery on herself and she just like ended up killing herself. And that's why she has cuts all over her body. And it's, it's broken down as to how she died, why she looks the way she does. So like I would highly recommend if for any fans of this film who haven't seen that, it's on YouTube. You can find it. But it's it's so interesting and it makes these ghosts pop so much more. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think we can agree. That's a little bit of what the film is missing is, is a little bit more backstory on the ghost. So uh, yeah, that the television series, a series announcement couldn't come at the, at a better time because we had already decided we were going to cover this film when that was announced. And we're like, Holy shit. You know, we talked about it at the Houston film festival and you're like, Oh, I hope it focuses on the, each of the 13 ghosts, which would be really, really cool. So they, hopefully they draw from that DVD and, and kind of expand you know, the backstory of the ghost into, into an episode because it's, I think it's supposed to be 13 episodes. Right. But yeah, so Dennis sees some of these ghosts, he runs up and he blows his cover. He tells Arthur that he's really his uncle's old sidekick and they used to hunt ghosts together. And, you know, Arthur is having a really hard time grasping what is being said to him. He's like, what goats? He's like, no ghosts, ghosts. And in the meantime, you know, Maggie and Bobby are exploring uh, the house. D Kathy finds that fucking glass bedroom with that giant bed and jumps in it like a little like 13 year old girl. Dennis's thing is he's trying to, to convince Cyrus that they have to leave. It's like, we got to get out of here. There are containment cubes in the basement for some reason. I don't want to find out why they're there. So we need to get out of there. Maggie finds some of these glasses and she uh, gives... You know, she puts them on jokingly, but then she gives um, Bobby a pair. So he takes them and he's riding his scooter all through the house. In the meantime, also, guess who put on some glasses and is strolling leisurely through the basement? It is the lawyer, Moss, who now is like he's wisecracking all these ghosts as he's walking by because he has the glasses on. And he can see them in their cage or in their their boxes and he's making little like wisecracking jokes at them. And, you know, he thinks he's hot shit until he he gets his suitcase full of money. And when he turns to leave, he runs into the angry princess with her boobs out and everything. And she's, you know, has her knife up and she's coming towards him. And all of a sudden, the fucking glass barrier of the hallway falls down and literally slices this guy in half. And let me tell you, it is a really really well done effect oh this is one of the best examples of a practical effect i would say from 
from I mean I would say the two thousands, but honestly, probably of all fucking time. D- didn't you? Didn't you put this on a list that we, didn't we do a top three on Patreon and you included? Yeah, it might have it might have actually been best kills. Was it? I think I was definitely. I think my best one of my top three best kills. And I hadn't seen it yet, so I was like, oh, "Okay, that sounds cool." Seeing it, I can totally see why. I was like, "Wow, this is pretty effective." One thing that makes it really effective is like you watch his face. Like his lips are twitching, his eyes are still moving as as his front half starts to slide down the the glass. You see like his eyes moving around and his like mouth. Like it's it's so so well done. Like the detail and everything is is, is wonderful for a film that does at times struggle with somewhat dated CGI. One of the things to celebrate about this movie is that when it does have the opportunity to do things practically, it often does. The ghosts, like you said earlier, a couple of the ghosts maybe look a little a little bit latexy, but you know what? Every single one of those ghosts is practical, aside from the, the one that's the torso that is some of the best CGI in the fucking movie. Other than that, these these are all practical effects on these ghosts, and they, they really look great because of it. Um, and you also have several key sequences involving characters being killed or, or injured that are also practical. And so... This example specifically, this is all puppeteer work. That is a fake bust of his body that is being operated by like mechanics. And it looks it looks so accurate. It's probably the best like facial recreation I've seen. Like when you're thinking like decapitated heads and, you know, bodies, torsos, things like that. This looks as though it is the actor himself moving and twitching and as the body is sliding down to reveal the other half behind it, you know, half the brain, the full shape of the skull as it was chopped in half. I mean, it is so detailed and it really does stand out as, as one of my favorite kills of all time. Um, and even in the progression building up to it, because I do want to acknowledge, yes, the script here does struggle at times, but the core story for the most part that this fucking shitty maniacal uncle chose to take advantage of one of his own family members after he lost his wife to a fire and manipulate all of these situations so things work out in his benefit. And then all of the people who are working under him are also completely disposable to him. And so when they're done serving their purpose, he just gets rid of them too. And so this moment with the lawyer, everything sets off because the lawyer is instructed to go get his bag of money after he's done with his job. And when he lifts the bag up, it pulls the trigger that sets the machine into motion. And I love that everything sets off because this greedy fucking piece of shit is trying to get the fuck out of there. He pulls the lever. It opens the door. The angry princess steps out and he's dead. And I just think it's such a great setup for things to start moving. Yeah. Well, and boy, do they move, right? I mean... It it goes it gets into high gear now and like I said the move the movie moves at a fast pace to the point where sometimes there's just so many so much going on like it's you know you're trying to keep track of where everyone is in the house and what they're doing but after this you know Kathy uh, leaves the bedroom and goes into like the master bathroom that's attached to this bedroom and I, I really like this shot because she's she's in the mirror she's looking in the mirror. The, the vanity mirror and there's a pair of those glasses that are sitting on the the vanity and the camera just c- sort of zooms in and 
we actually then see the camera go into the lens of the glasses. And then we all of a sudden see everything change from perspective of what you would see if you were wearing those glasses, which I thought was really cool. And what you see is the bathroom is covered in blood and the angry princess is in the mirror next to her as she's, you know, looking at her face and whatnot. And then she goes into the bath. She opens the shower curtain and gets into the, or goes into the bathtub to like rinse her face off. And the whole time, the angry princess is in there with in a bathtub full of blood. Now, Shannon Elizabeth's character can't see any of this, but it's very, very, very well done. And the, this this bathroom is covered in blood. On the floor is written "I'm sorry" in blood. And just as the angry princess is kind of leaping up to stab, Arthur comes in and he finds Kathy. But this whole scene is pretty, pretty cool. I think. I think the one thing to celebrate about this film is while it hits its pitfalls and often it, you know, it, it's trudging along at times when it has a scene that is successful, that scene is, I would say truly kick-ass. I mean, like there are several scenes in this film that do achieve what they're, they're going for and they achieve it impressively well. And you're absolutely right. This scene, this scene stands out to me so much. I remember seeing this scene as, as, a, as a teen. I'm being so in awe. At the time, the CGI was so impressive when it went through the frames of the glasses. And, you know, it reveals that the room is covered in blood and it's building up. And you have this whole moment of her, the, 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 the tub, the water coming out of the blood is turning red. It's turning to blood. But Shannon and Elizabeth can't tell because she's seeing her reality. And the angry princess is just watching her with like rage in her face. And it's just, it's a, it's a truly memorable scene for me. And it's so effective. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden the moment's broken because Tony Shalhoub shows up and, and you things keep moving, but you have this really great break, this one moment where Shannon Elizabeth's care for as minuscule and uh, not important as she is, she does get two key scenes in this film that, are truly exceptional and at least she has that for this character because other than that she sure she, she certainly doesn't have anything <laughs> oh god no there yeah i felt i feel felt bad for her it's like why are you get why are you getting shannon elizabeth and they're not really giving her much to do at all and, and it really i mean i think the film at times i don't know it, it kind of seems like it's the matthew lillard show and i don't know if it's because he is just so hammy in this film but i i I thought it was a cool concept to put these two together, you know, because he was obviously uh, Stu Mocker in the original Scream, and then Shannon Elizabeth was in Scary Movie, which spoofed Scream. So it was kind of cool to have this pairing, but they, there's just, God, they waste her so bad in this. So bad. So Bobby rides, ba- rides past the basement on his scooter, and some voices call him into the basement. At the same time, there's a very distinct voice that's telling him not to come into the basement, but he does go down into the basement. He, he, you know, he's a little boy. He's curious. Arthur's trying to get round up his family to get, get him out of the house. But Dennis is like, we cannot get out of this house. They're not going to let you out. There's no way out. And Arthur demands that he gets up and helps look for Bobby. So he does begrudgingly. And this is when Maggie makes her comment. Did the lawyer split? Ha ha ha, that Maggie. And it is worth acknowledging that upstairs as well, like everything about the house, as soon as the lever is pulled, the house starts completely shifting and changing and, you know, the walls are moving, including the outside. So now you have all these metal panels that are like lifting and moving. So when they go to try to get outside, the door 
is, is locked, it's blocked. So they're now completely trapped within this house. And certain doors are opening, certain doors are closing. And it's kind of creating this maze that they can't predict. And that is another kind of cool aspect. And part of why it's so overwhelming at times is, you know, the layout's constantly changing. Walls are forming, doors are opening, a passage will become a trap, you know, a wall will become an opening, and all of a sudden they'll be able to run through to another room. So it is a bit overwhelming, but it does it does have purpose to it. Uh, so they, they kind of, at this point, they're, they're trying to find a way out. And they, Bobby is in the basement. Dennis is explaining to the group that the etchings in the glass are containment spells, and the ghosts must obey them. Bobby puts the glasses on that maggie found for him so he's in the basement now and he literally sees all of these fucking ghosts and he is like trying to get away at full speed on his little scooter when he runs right into the uh the glass wall falls off a scooter knocks himself out so he's out of the movie for a while thank god dennis upstairs you know he's trying to convince arthur that you know arthur's still having a hard time believing that there are ghosts in this house so he's he's looking for bobby and dennis and maggie are together and dennis gives maggie a pair of glasses and says that these are spectral viewers that allow the person wearing him to see the ghosts and at this moment it's when arthur decides that he does want to go down in the basement to look for bobby and dennis is like uh no did i say there was did i say there's a petting zoo down there arthur no there's ghosts but Arthur convinces him because he says, I will pay you what Cyrus owed you. There are lines that Matthew Lillard delivers in this film that I do very much enjoy. And that is one of them. I mean, Matthew Lillard has a certain way about him and it is big. It is brash. And so, yeah, this character does feel very over the top. But I'm not going to say I dislike the character, especially some of the choices he makes towards the end of the movie. Um, and I got to say, he looks fucking hot doing it, even when he's covered in blood. I mean... Well, the moment he removes that goddamn orange suit to reveal a full like, a full like suit jacket with like that like, button up, so, uh, it's yeah. like a silk. I know it's like a silk suit jacket. No, I don't. I do not dislike Matthew Lillard at all. Uh, if you know Matthew Lillard, his he's he's hammy. That's that's his thing. I mean, look at the whole climax of Scream. Uh, imagine that amped up the an entire film, and that's what you get here. It's hard to dislike Matthew Lillard. Um, but it is a very hammy performance. But again, that's Matthew Lillard. Um, I can see where some people would be annoyed by it. I do think that some of his line delivery, especially in the opening of the film, is is very cringeworthy, but he does get better. And this is probably one of my favorite line deliveries of the film when he's like, did I say there was a petting zoo down there, Arthur? No. I just love that. And yeah, he does he does get some very big kind of Stumacher type moments later on in the film too. And then kind of what he does at the end of the film maybe redeems any dislike that you may have had for, for the character, but he's big. He's big. One thing I'd like to really touch on Troy real fast is you've got this whole moment of Bobby downstairs where he's on the run now. Cause he's got the glasses. He has seen several of the ghosts and a few of the ghosts have been like introduced. And I just want to touch on, like you see the bound woman, because he sees her with the tie wrapped around her neck and she's like got like part of her throat's revealed. And then he's scootering away, flipping his shit, and he runs into the torso, who I mentioned earlier, who is a the to- like the torso of a man who has his le- he's missing his legs and his head is he's been decapitated. And you see the head on the floor in a bag, 
screaming and it's it's obviously horrifying and then you see that the torso crawling towards the kid crawling towards bobby and the cgi on this on this specific shot you know some of this cgi has been iffy when you see the machine for example it's kind of like oh this looks very uh like along came a spider when that car scene happened where it flipped over and it looked fucking completely like unnatural this is almost like on the verge of looking bad it it works but it it does look very like early 2000 this shot though this decapitation like effect the throat like it's already that's already been removed but like you see the inside of the wound it is in my opinion exceptional like it is one of the best early 2000 cgi effects i've seen involving any kind of gore or blood or anything um it's very impressive um and i did i just wanted to highlight that moment because it like there are several quick scares here you're seeing ghost after ghost after ghost you're starting to actually get to see them and this one just popped for me i agree and that's the thing is everything in this film like these ghosts some of these ghosts are presented like so quickly and then you don't see them again like i don't think you really see the the bound woman again after this particular scene i don't really think you see the torso i mean you see them all around the circle at the end but there's no significant time spent on them so it is very easy to like overlook or forget that one was even shown because they really focus on let's say they really focus on the, the hammer the juggernaut, the torn prince, and the angry princess are probably the 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 ones that get the most screen time, and the other ones are kind of put to the back burner, with the exception of the the weathered lover or whatever. Who is? We'll get to who she is in a minute. Yeah, so you are right. Yeah, the the uh, torso is also a very effectively creepy little thing. I, that would be fun to be for Halloween. Wrap yourself in some saran wrap and just crawl around on the floor, right? I mean, you have to remove your head for it. I don't know how you're going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Downstairs, Bobby wakes up and he hears a voice telling him that he needs to go upstairs. And it's a very calming, motherly voice, hint, hint. And, you know, he, he actually then, as he gets up, he actually sees the vision of his mother's half-burned face, but it quickly goes away and it transitions into Cyrus who like, what's he do? Like kick him or something. I was, I was having a hard time gathering what Cyrus does, but he does something. He gets Bobby, right? So what happens in this moment, Troy is, is Bobby wakes up. He sees his mom coming towards him and she's got like it. What I love about her design is she has like the, the hospital gown and like the, she's, she's, yeah, she's dragging the IV with her. And she's, I mean, like, her burn effect looks pretty fucking wild. It is it is gruesome. It's a whole half of her body. And he sees her, and so he's backing up. He's obviously, like, scared, but he's like, Mom? So he's backing up, and as he backs up, he doesn't see that Cyrus appears behind him with the cut in his throat, covered in blood. Um, and he appears behind him, and then he turns around, and Cyrus apparently grabs him because you see his little feet go up. So what you're supposed to believe is that Cyrus has, you know, abducted the kid, has grabbed the kid, and now whatever it happened from here, it almost is presented in a way like you think he's died in a way, the way it's shot. First time I saw this, I thought they killed the kid. So they're all in the basement, and Arthur suggests they split up. So he goes with Kathy, and Maggie goes with Dennis. And again, this is when Dennis gives her the glasses again so that she can see for herself that these ghosts are real. And in fact, she puts them on and she does see the hammer, this giant of a man who is like impaled with, what are they, like railroad spikes and stuff? Very, very 
intimidating looking looking ghost here and she just so now she sees it so she has to believe what's being told and there is this moment where as they're like moving down the hallway dennis like f- gives the hammer the, a middle finger he flicks him the middle finger and as he's doing that he suddenly gets visions of his own self being like murdered and you can tell like his face is like oh shit <laughs> and it does come into play here later on in the film i do like that they, they present this aspect troy of like oftentimes you'll have like these psychic premonitions and they're like, we're going to change it. We're going to try to change it. Like we could, we can outdo it. Like, you know, he's a fucking psychic. Like he knows what's coming and him seeing this, like, it's not like he even ever tries to alter reality. He accepts at this point, like this is absolutely what's going to happen. And it just is what it is. It is what it is. And the moment it actually happens, he even says that he's like, well, this was, this was my fate anyways. It is what it is. Right. Now the scene is, I think, the one that you talk about where Shannon Elizabeth gets two kind of standout scenes. This is the second one because as as she's walking down the hallway with her dad, Arthur, she actually puts on some of these glasses and immediately she sees the jackal. Forgot about the fucking jackal. The jackal. That fucking thing. This thing is like relentless. It has like a metal cage over its head and it's just angry as fuck and it's like scratching the shit out of her. Like... I mean, you're, you're right. Scratching her face, scratching her chest, rips her blouse open so her boobs flop out at, well, in a bra. But I mean, it's just, this is a very, 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 very brutally graphic scene. I mean, she is attacked and Arthur can't see what's attacking her, right? He's just like seeing all of these marks appear on her very like Nightmare on Elm Street-ish where he's just seeing like slashes appear on her face and on her back and her blouse being ripped open. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, Kalina shows up with some fucking dynamite. Where did this fucking bitch come from? Like, my God. Yeah. Her explanation of how she got in the house, I'm not buying it. It's like the weakest I'm explanation. Buying you could... it. Oh my God. She's like, oh, uh, I, I snuck in when the house was changing. I snuck into an uh, open space. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. It's such a throwaway line. It's such a minor like delivery too. And it's really something where I'm like, how did this bitch get inside? They can't seem to find any way to get out whatsoever. Um, but you know, I, I, I think like, you know, touching on this sequence here, because leading up to this point, like I, I will say the character of Dennis has been giving some really great exposition on the ghost and, and there is so much talking and there's so much explaining going on whether it be coming from him or being coming from kalina now because now she's given fucking exposition as well so you really got to keep up with it but some of the things that dennis spews like some of the information about the ghosts like how most ghosts you know do not hurt people but there are some who are so tortured that they that they are you know actually violent spirits and then that's what's trapped in this basement you know he is helping kind of like set the tone for just how dangerous these things are so i do enjoy hearing some of this stuff but my god is this long-winded like the whole movie they're just talking about this whole fucking spell that's about to happen like my god like pack a lunch it is long-winded well there's a whole moment where they repeat they play Karina's exact same dialogue from like five minutes earlier <laughs> at the end of the film. I mean, I was like, are you serious? Like, are you really going to play the exact same dialogue? She just said five minutes ago. I mean, it is, that's the thing about this film, Roger, is it, it it's so like convoluted, not even convoluted. That's the wrong word. It's so like heavy handed and feeding you 
um, all of this information about what we are seeing and why we are seeing it. And it just becomes the point where, okay, just shut up. I don't, at this point, I don't really care why any of this is, th- is happening. I just want to see these fucking awesome ghosts attack these people. I don't need you to explain to me why it's happening. I get it. It's a film. We need some explanation, but this film takes it a little bit overboard. I think it definitely, definitely does. No, I feel like this, the filmmaker or the scriptwriter, whoever you want to blame, I feel like they feel like, I feel like they felt that their audience is going to be too stupid to figure it out. Like there's a lot of stuff that, you know, people have the ability to infer things, you know, you give them clues and most people can infer what's going on. You don't need every detail spoon fed to you. And this film feels like it needs to do that. And in a way it's almost sort of like offensive that you think you have to tell me as the viewer, every little detail like that, because I'm not going to be able to figure it out myself by what you've presented. If you were a good filmmaker, we should be able to figure out some of this stuff without you shoving it down our throats. Because again, it's a film. It's all about showing, not telling. This film, a lot of times, does it backwards. It wants to tell and not show. I, I'll agree with that too. You know, you've had some critiques and criticisms, but I'm not going to say a single one of them is like unwarranted. Like the, this whole film, aside from the opening sequence, this entire film takes place over literally like the course of one day. Like everyone in this movie is wears one outfit the entire course of the film. Like it is, it is one day, but it is the longest, most like, most just like exhausting day ever because like they are just, they are learning so much about these spells and you're learning about the backstory. Kalina's about to have a fucking long ass monologue about the, about the creation of this machine house and the philosopher that came up with it, that he was possessed by the devil. <laughs> There's just so much going on. And I thought about it. I was like, am I, uh, no, it is. There's so much. And when I got to this part, I was like, do I even take notes on this? Do I need to really, re- do I need to repeat this for the, uh, for our listeners? Watch the movie. Like, I don't know. Like it's so much, it's so much, but she does. So Kalina at least does show up to save the day. She does save uh, Kathy from the jackal. And they drag her for five minutes across the glass floor. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, this goes on for a long time. They're dragging her down the hallway. One one direction, then the other direction. One direction, then the other. They they got, they got finally get the jackal away. They, they, they throw enough dynamite or whatever to get the jackal away. So they get Kathy. As Maggie and Dennis are making their way through the basement, they are confronted by the firstborn son and the angry princess who don't really do anything. They just kind of let them walk on by. But you, at least you know their, present is, their presence is, is there. And now we move into basically <sighs> Arthur wanting to know who Kalina is, how she got in the house. And like I said, throw away. Oh, I, I slipped in one of the slots when the house was changing. And then she explains that she is there because she frees trapped souls. Doesn't that sound exhausting? <laughs> like, if that was your job, free and How do you even souls. get into that? How do you get into that business? Like, how do you decide, like, oh, I'm going to free trapped souls? Like, can that be a, a, a business that sustains your... How many trapped souls are there? This leads to a lot of questions. Like, are there just tons of people like Cyrus around the world that are, like, trapping ghosts? And so there needs to be a a soul releaser with a villain comes a hero troy and that's exactly who kalina is or so you think a little do you know how wrong you fucking are about this broad 
finally, we're half, we're more than halfway through the film. Finally, Arthur puts on these glasses so that he can see the ghost himself. So finally, he realizes, oh my God, Dennis has been right this whole time. And yes, now she goes into this long-winded explanation, and I'm just going to gloss over it. She has this book that was written by an astrologer who was possessed by the team by a demon at the time he wrote it. And the book basically has a blueprint for a design to build a, a machine. The house isn't really even a house. It's a machine. And it's a machine that if you build it correctly, designed by the devil and powered by the dead. And how you do that is you get, you trap the 13 ghosts, the 13 souls in this house and yada, 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 do some incantation spells in the fucking house becomes a portal to hell. And you are the most powerful person in the world. That's the gist of it. Did I miss anything? (laughs) Doesn't it also show you the future? I think I don't (laughs) know. It it does everything. It cooks, it cooks you dinner. Yeah. It is so complex. The amount of steps that have to be taken. I mean, it does make Cyrus at least seem that much more cuckoo bananas for the fact he's gone through all of this nonsense. And even we haven't even touched on the fact that Cyrus is still around to begin with, because that's coming up. Like we are going to get down to Cyrus here in a moment. But like, I mean, it is so complex. It's so fucking complex that it actually distracts Arthur for long enough for his other child to be abducted (laughs) without his even noticing Where did she go? I know. Where did she go? There's just like this moment where all of a sudden, yeah, they're like, oh, Kathy's gone. Where the fuck did Kathy? And she's gone for the rest of the movie. She pops up at the end, literally pops up at the end of the movie. Um, then there's this whole thing, Roger, and it goes back and forth between Maggie and Dennis getting separated by a piece of glass. He is attacked by the torn prince with a bat. And there you have this whole little cool thing, kind of cool thing, where he can't see where the torn prince is because he doesn't have the glasses, but Maggie does have the glasses. So she's trying to like guide him when to move and stuff. Um, and finally he's able to get away and him and Maggie continue down the corridor when they run into, Oh, I love this. This is me and you, Roger. I'm telling you the dire mother and the great child. I fucking love this duo. I need a, I cannot wait for the backstory on these two. It's like gypsy Rose, gypsy Rose Blanchard and her fucking mother, Dee. Dee. I need to see this. These two, these two are some of the ones that get utilized the least. But I really think it's because the big, the big baby man just can't keep up with everybody else. But he's got this axe too. He's just standing there with an axe. His mother, just looking, just dour, just, just exhausted with her giant child. She's very tiny. Imagine that woman birthing that baby because I, you know, that was a fat baby. I mean, he is a fat baby now, but he's a grown man dressed as a baby. But even when he was a baby, I mean, that woman had to be torn in two. And they really don't do anything. We've got a, a moment where Maggie and Dennis see the two of them, and they're just standing there making goo goo gaga noises um, with that axe. And then they like run off, and they they make it seem like they're chasing them, but they don't even like move. They're just kind of like being ghosts. I really wanted to see more of these two. Oh, yeah. I cannot wait. Like I said, I cannot wait for the backstory on these two. So Kalina, in the meantime, she's trying to get to the library. So she's climbing up the stairs and she is actually reunited with Maggie and Dennis. Arthur sees like a glass door open and the hammer get free and the hammer like starts coming after him. So he takes off running and again, conveniently runs into the rest of the group. What I love about this film, Roger, is that. Like there are moments where these guys pretend like this house is so big 
and they're never going to find each other. Like, oh my God, there's so many hallways. It's so big. We can't find our children. We're there in a labyrinth. But when it's convenient to the plot and to drive the plot forward, they run into each other like it's nothing. Like it's, it's, it's so funny. One thing that Kalina does bring is at least like she motivates them to start like moving peat panels of glass to start using them to benefit them or to, you know, to, to find ways to get, you know, move through. For example, in this case, they, they actually, she and Arthur climb through the ceiling. They remove a pane of glass and they climb from the basement up because they want to get upstairs. So they climb through the, to the upstairs and Dennis and Maggie are already upstairs. So they, they connect with each other up there. Um, but they do start using this ability to take planes of panes of glass with the incantations on them and use them as shields, which is something that does come into play here soon, which I do think is kind of cool. Yeah. And well, there's this moment when, when they're together, when they're kind of going down the corridor and all of a sudden Arthur is now attacked by the jackal and he is clawed. His back is clawed to hell by the jackal. And of course, Karina and the group are able to, to save him and pull him into the, the, to the library. And this is when Kalina has a big confrontation with Dennis. Um, and it is revealed, you know, Kalina is like, this is all your fault. You're the cause of this. You stole people's souls for money. And, you know, you are, um, you're, you're a vile human being. How could you do this? These were, these were human souls and you're depraved. And he's like, oh, I may be depraved, but you know, Cyrus, Cyrus liked me. And she's like, ah, he didn't like you. He just used you. And Arthur's like, shut up. What difference does it make? And this is when Kalina's like, oh, you didn't tell them, did you? And Dennis is like, please don't do this. Please don't do this. And what we find out is that one of the, the fourth ghost that Cyrus stole was Jean, Arthur's wife. And this causes Arthur to go into a rage. He punches Dennis. And this is when goes on to explain the whole idea of the, 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 the ghosts that are needed to power the house. And the, the machine requires the energy of these, these specific ghosts to power it. And then again, it opens the, the eye of hell and the man who controls it will be the most powerful man in the world. And it's also mentioned, of course, the only way to stop it is for someone to willingly jump into the eye when it opens. And it has to be someone that is a, uh, is like love sick. Um, and she basically is like convincing him or trying to convince him that, Hey, if you want to save your children, you're going to have to like jump into this thing and kill yourself. <laughs> I mean, she's so matter of fact about it. As convoluted as all of this nonsense may be, because let's be real, it is absolute bonkers. Um, I really do love the moment where she does finally read through like the black Zodiac and like goes through and, and names them off one by one, because you've been seeing glimpses of them thus far, but they now are actually given like titles. Like each one has an identity and you get to see a strong visual and you get to see an illustration that coincides with it um, of, of like that interpretation of the ghost. And I really love that moment. Um, and yes, there's a moment that comes up here where she does basically inform him that the only way to in her words stop this you know stop the machine stop the ritual is an act of selfless love 
someone who has to willingly put themselves in danger and, you know, sacrifice themselves to prevent harm for someone they care about. And so he's been put in this predicament where it's clear that he's the only one who's really able to do that. And so, um, you know, right away, Dennis is like, this just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense with what Cyrus was saying. There's got to be something more to this. So he's automatically suspicious of it. Um, and he, he says, he's like, there's got to be another way we can do this. Let me help you. I'll go with you back in there. We'll do this together. And he kind of has a shift in his character now where he is now really determined and motivated to kind of make up for some of the shitty things he's done. Well, because I wonder if he, if he realizes that Kalina is really up to no good, because keep in mind, he is he is psychic, right? He does have the ability to see things in the future or things in the past. So I wonder if he knows that so he is or at least he's picking up on it. He might not know that she is 100% in on it, but he knows that there's something not right. So because, yeah, he, you're right. He now is very willing to go look for uh, Bobby and Kathy to the point where, yeah, they grab a, a piece of the glass with the inscription on it and they they take off. They're going they're going to look for the kids. And Maggie and Kalina, they go their own way. Um, and as they're going down in the basement, they do see the lawyer's body cut in in half and they walk past this huge gear thing that is like, really running the house that giant gear thing that yes cgi'd in 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 some parts so it looks kind of outdated but it is a really cool thing yeah so arthur and dennis as they're as they're searching for the kids they are attacked briefly by the torn prince who they're able to then push with the glass into into a wall to escape at the same time maggie and kalina are upstairs by that gear they're kind of in awe of it when we see someone with a cane approach and Maggie sees them and she's like, Kalina help me because this, this thing isn't stopping, you know, I'm taking off the glasses and it's still here. And all of a sudden Kalina takes this, the giant book of spells she has and she raises it and you think she's going to like try to protect Maggie, but instead she fucking hits Maggie in the head and knocks her out, knocks her into the fucking wall or head bashes against the wall. And we see that it's fucking Cyrus. And I need something explained to me because he, yes, he has a, his throat is slit, but he is not a, like, he's not a ghost. Like he, he's not a ghost. So what the fuck is going on? And how is Kalina all of a sudden involved in this? No, she hated him at the beginning. Remember like the whole opening scene, she was like spitting at him and calling him a vile. And now she's in on it. And now what I also hate Roger is that I hate the fact that they present this woman. We, we want, we want strong female roles, right? We want these strong female characters in horror films you know we want the the ripley's and whatnot and kalina's introduced in the film outside of the opening scene she's coming in with dynamite she's ready to fucking take charge this is a bad bitch the second cyrus enters the picture and we find out she's in on it what does she turn into oh did i make you mad don't be mad at me, Cyrus. I didn't want to make you mad. I'm like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Yeah, it's it's very um, disenchanting because you were starting to think that her character as nonsensical as she was and that really feels like the, the sole purpose that she's there is to just provide exposition. Um, at least she was providing like a yeah, strong female energy, a take charge kind of personality. And you realize that everything she said up to this point has been like fake and bullshit and everything that you thought she was impassioned by and stood for is not true. Uh, and it makes her character just leave a really awful taste in your mouth. And it's a bummer because 
I mean, she's not like like the best performance ever, but at least like she was apparently standing for something good that she cared about or trying to do something. I mean, I guess saving souls is a good thing. I don't fucking know. Freeing souls. But still, like, I mean, it's, it's clear that she was attempting to stand up against what Cyrus stood for, uh, but apparently not. You know, and, and I and I think that's really, really just like I said, like disenchanting. Like you, you know, you this whole this character is completely destroyed um, and and uh, really wasted in this moment, and it's a shame. Yeah, probably the worst decision this film makes. Yeah, you're right. It's a shame. It's a shame because this whole character then becomes a a complete sham and a complete like waste of of time really like and again it's such a disservice to to have this to start out with this kick kick ass strong take charge female character and then have her transcend into just the whimpering uh lovesick you know whiny lovesick girl that just wants the approval of a man i mean it's almost nauseating to be honest with you it really is. It really is. It's a huge disappointment. And and going back to the whole note with, with Cyrus. So, I mean, it's pretty clear. The idea here is that he faked his death, but what really throws you off the, and I'm sure, especially for first time viewers, it's really going to be confusing is they, they decide to have it so that he has the wound on his neck still. Um, which yeah, why? makes no, no sense because this is supposed to be like weeks after the fact. And I mean, I guess maybe he wanted to convince people that they were seeing him as a ghost to explain his presence being there, but that's not explained enough. I really think they, they, they wanted to give the impression that he is one of the ghosts. And so that they, they think if they spot him down there, they're like, Oh, it's his spirit. He's there as well. Um, but then when they take off the glasses, he's clearly there in person, but he, he never removes the wound, the prosthetic. He never, um, says it was fake. And so, you know, for you as the viewer, it looks good enough that you're thinking it's real. Um, it's just not explained clearly enough. It really is not. It makes for a very, very confusing twist. Yeah, I was really confused. I was really confused, but I think your explanation there actually makes a lot of sense that he was trying to fake uh, Arthur and, and the kids up, but it, it wouldn't matter because they were his whole, the whole premise of that plan would be that when Arthur sees him or when these other people in the house see him, they're going to be wearing the glasses, right? What if they're not wearing the glasses? They're still going to see him. You know, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and then, you know, so yeah, so now you're gut punched with this whole revelation that the whole Kalina character was a fucking throwaway apparently. So we move from that into Dennis and Arthur um, being walking down the hallway and being separated like a glass wall comes down and separates them. And Arthur's trying to get to Dennis. I'm like, hey, Dennis, I can help you. I can help you. And this is when Dennis is like, no, man, it doesn't matter. It's this is what it is. And he is literally attacked by not only the hammer who like punches him severely twice in the back, but then the fucking the 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 torn prince with his comes in and like bashes him with the baseball bat to the point where he then lifts him up and uh breaks his back against the pole i mean it's pretty brutal it's a pretty brutal end for for this character who yeah i guess is a villain but has really been like the i want to say to me you know the matthew lillard character has been like the main character of the film and it just happened so like quickly and brutally i was like oh okay i guess yeah 
Yeah, well, I mean, th- there are there are technically three ghosts that kill him. It's the torn prince hits him first, and then the hammer comes in, and comes in and hits him with the uh, the obviously the, the hammer that's attached to his arm, and then the juggernaut is released as the final ghost, and he comes in and he lifts him up, and he does do that really brutal backbreaking, and and it is it is kind of abrupt, but it is also satisfying in the sense that you did have that vision before, and you do see several of these moments tie in here and so like you did kind of see this coming but it does make for a very sad moment for arthur because you do see arthur after the fact that he watches this whole thing happen and he's protected against this frame of glass that that dennis you know forces him to hide behind and literally offers himself up so that arthur can save his children and it does give the final push through the rest of the film a nice emotional heft that i think it needed because again, these characters are so at times disjointed, wooden, um, unnatural, that this seemed like a very selfless decision on behalf of Dennis. His character needed it. And it does make me care a little bit more now, I would say. Uh, it's definitely not a not as a confusing character shift the, as the one we get with Kalina now, is it, right? So Cyrus is like, you know, Kalina's trying to explain to Cyrus that the only way that they are going to get Arthur to sacrifice himself as if his kids are in jeopardy. So Cyrus is like, well, put the kids in jeopardy. And you see her like, she's taking it back. She's like, yeah, they're just kids. And he's like, yeah, so, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Right. And then he turns on some, some music that, that streams through the house some some spells and it causes all the ghosts to like disappear one by one, except Jean who approaches Arthur and, you know, he tells her, that he loves her and misses her very much. And then she slowly disappears. Um, and then as Cyrus is leaving the library, Kalina is following him and he, you know, doesn't, he's like, Hey, don't forget to fetch the book. And she goes back and grabs the book. And when she's coming, he knows that she's coming behind him. He fucking turns on the lever and has, <laughs> has the, uh, the glass doorway, like the, the walls implode and fucking crush her crush her it is satisfying to watch her die this way because of the horrible character shift that has happened um and it is honestly though it does look a pinch cgi when you watch the visual of her head you literally get crushed like a grape like you see it like it the frame the the shot is on her and you see her head like smash and like pop and it is truly pretty wild it made me cringe because that is one way I, that's one way I would never want to die. Uh, at least it happens fast. Like, you know, there's been, I can't think of the movie where that, where like the walls start to like move in and it's very, very, very slow. And like the person has no, is it like one of the saw movies where that happens? And like, you are like literally just waiting for the, the wall to enclose on you and you know, what's coming and be crushed. To death. This happens pretty fast. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty fast, but then yeah, she's dead. It looks great. I, I definitely cringed. Uh, yeah, at this point, I could give a shit less about the character, so it really didn't affect me. And all he says is, greatness requires sacrifice. And at this moment, uh, Arthur's back down in kind of this main area of the house when all of a sudden, Kathy and Bobby appear up from the floor. They're bound, and they're in like the middle of that eye thing. And all around them are these like swirling metal things and the ghosts, all of the third, all of the the 12 ghosts or 13 ghosts are standing around them in a circle. And Arthur sees Cyrus at the other end of the room. And he slowly takes his glasses off 
to see that Cyrus is still there. He is not a ghost. And he full fucking on just fucking runs at Cyrus and attacks him. And you get this brief little battle before Cyrus is able to knock him to the ground and like hit him with his cane a couple times. He's like, Arthur, you're nothing but a fucking loser. You will jump into that eye. You will become the 13 ghost. It's why I chose you and your pathetic family. It is really satisfying to see Tony Shalhoub finally step up and start beating on him. But so quickly Cyrus gets like the best of him. Like Tony Shalhoub's character is pretty incompetent at times. Um, and he is, he is rather weak. And it's so sad to even watch at this moment. Like Cyrus is beating him. He's like, you're weak. You're weak. You're a loser. <laughs> It was, yeah, you think like he's going to like, he charges at him full force. And this is an elderly man, you know, and a, and a middle-aged man. So you think Tony Shalhoub's Arthur is going to beat the shit out of him. But it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for, for Cyrus to to overtake him. Yeah, and he's just berating him. You're a loser. You're a weak. Your family's pathetic. In the meantime, we forgot about fucking Maggie, but she woke back up. And she is up there, and she's a DJ in real life. So you know this bitch. She's working the 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 sound control panel causing the chance to go berserk and all of a sudden the ghosts like release from their stance because they're transfixed staring at the eye as it's spinning around and they it's like they've been released period from like their 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 trans everything from the house because now they know who did this to them because they go right over to fucking cyrus and they all pick him up and carry him and i i mean f marie abraham's a a good actor but in this like this moment he's like cowering whimpering and it's just like so it's almost laughable you know what i'm talking about he's like and they come and pick him up and they literally throw him into the swirling metal chopping him into bits and this is when you get the bad cgi because you see all these cgi body parts fly towards the screen it is some bad CGI, but I fucking love this moment. It is the whole sequence of the ghosts like turning and surrounding him. And you see this great shot from his POV of all of the ghosts like bending in towards him. And I do love that it keeps cutting back and forth from like him being lifted with by the ghost to him like just floating in midair. Like you do have this great shot of him just being like brought out into the room through the doorway and he's just floating and it's, it's so fucking cool. And then, yeah, he's launched into the machine and I, let's be real. All of the CGI is pretty iffy, like these swirling metal discs, everything going on around Jen and Elizabeth and that awful child. Uh, like it's all just very like two thousands digital, but I still enjoy this kill for what it is. Like, am I going to say it's the best CGI ever? Absolutely not. Um, but I like the buildup. I like that the ghosts are the ones to get the final like moment of vengeance. Cause like, fuck you, you've trapped us in these cubes this whole fucking time. Yeah. We're going to kill you. Like we're going to, you're like our area of focus, not these people. So I do like that the ghosts get to have that final moment and throw him to the machine. Yeah. I do like the shot of him floating in midair as he's being carried to- towards the the eye that's spinning around because Tony Shalhoub at this point doesn't have his glasses on. So that's the, that's the, so that's the vision he's seeing is literally Cyrus being carried to this, um, to, to his death. And it is really effective. Yeah. The CGI is corny, but it is, uh, I mean, it's a very fitting death for this guy. Like the whole premise of this thing that he's trying to accomplish was that Arthur was going to be the one to jump into this eye and sacrifice himself. But in the end, he's the one that gets thrown into it and it causes, you know, his whole plan to go awry. And what it also 
causes is the ghost to literally be set free because they get to leave the house. And there's this like nice little shot of them all just like walking out of the house into the woods and just like disappearing into the woods. So they literally have been set free. And before that happens, though, we do get um, or the family, Arthur and, and Bobby and Kathy get one last vision of their mother and she looks normal. She doesn't have the burn on on her face and she's able to tell them. I love you one last time before then she goes and joins the other ghosts to, to, to go into, I'm assuming the afterlife where they're, where they're going to be free. I don't understand why she gets the privilege of looking normal and how do they see her without wearing their glasses? I guess it's that moment of being like, she's like able to like present herself to them one final time before she yeah, goes to the afterlife. Yes. I guess that makes sense. But like, they're not wearing the glasses. She's not covered in horrible burns. She's talking to them telepathically and uh, it just, yeah, it just doesn't seem like to follow the rules of everything else, but it is a nice moment of closure for the one, one main story arc that this entire family has had, which is they've lost the mother and their life has fallen apart. At least they get to have this final moment with her. So that is some nice closure. Um, but I mean, nothing wraps up a movie quite like this moment that we have with Maggie, lest we forget. Oh, Maggie, she, yeah, we, we have to, we're, we're ending the movie with Maggie. Of all characters to end the movie with, we're ending the movie with Maggie. She's pissed. She's like, I'm not doing this shit anymore. I am done. I fucking quit. And that's it. Maggie, that's, that ends the movie. Maggie's, Maggie's saying she's quitting, but that's not even enough because I believe she, because in real life, she is a rapper. She's an MC, And I feel like this is her song right over the opening credits. I enjoy Rodiga as Maggie, but I have to say, no offense, Rodiga, that this track, that this finale launches into, that plays over the credits, is, in my opinion, the single worst closing credit song I've ever heard in my life. It's horribly placed. The tone is not at all in line with anything else we've seen. Okay. Closing credits. I said opening credits. Yes, it plays over the closing credits. And I right away, I was like, what the fuck? This does not mesh with the tone of this film at all. And I feel like, I don't know, has she ever been like really popular? Because I have to be honest with you, I never really heard of her before. And when I was looking at IMDb, that's when I realized, okay, she is a rapper. She's an MC. She's very accomplished. I, I, I apologize that I've never heard of her, um, but she has worked with some of the bigger names in hip hop. I wonder if it was like, Oh, this is going to be her star vehicle. Sort of like Mariah Carey with glitter. You know, they're going to give her, this is going to be your, your star vehicle. That's going to get you into the films. And like part of her contract that was negotiated is like, if I'm going to do this film, then one of my songs has to be played over the opening credits. Oh, absolutely. Or, I'm sorry. One of my songs has to be played over the closing. I keep saying opening credits, closing credits. I mean, I, that's what I feel like it was. And God, couldn't they have, couldn't she at least written a song that, that like matched the movie? Oh, if that was the case. It, absolutely. Well, she's like, the first let's acknowledge that, yes, she's accomplished. And this is, you know, this is 2001. And Rod Digga is a member of Flip Mode Squad, which is led by Buster Rhymes, another horror movie um, star. You know, we saw him in, in uh, Halloween Resurrection. And so, you know, this is the time. This is the era in which we're getting a lot of these movies that are coming out, that you have a lot of hip-hop stars transitioning into horror. Um, and it's it's a shame because, honestly, like, she's competent in the film. 
But I really think, like, as I said earlier in the movie, like, they all they really let her do was kind of, like, play into, like, the sassy one-liners, like you mentioned, and she's not really given anything else. But then, like, this track, which it, it isn't even, like, when you listen to the lyrics, it's in no way affiliated with anything we've seen happening. It's not even dealing with death or dealing with... It's just, like, a track. It's just, like, a random track, and it's, like, an upbeat hip-hop track, and... It's not even a good one. Like, I mean, no offense to her, but like, it's not like they like they got like her big hit track. It's just like a disposable song. And so because of that, like you're ending it on this note and like the movie has not been without its flaws. Let's be real. But ending it on this song automatically takes like your brain and it shifts it into a direction it did not need to go. And it leaves you thinking like, what did I just watch and how is it coherent? And it just leaves your mind in a completely different note and a different just tone overall, tonally, than where you would have been. If this would have ended on like a moody track or something that was dark or something that was scary, maybe I would like leave this film feeling an emotion that kind of was in line with that, what they were trying to establish with that score, with that track. This automatically takes your head space and it, it places it some somewhere completely where it does not need to be. And it kind of like ruins the experience away for me. Yeah. I mean, I think you nailed it. It just, I mean, my only note was this song does not fit. I mean, but I think you're nailing it. Just, it just, it's so jarring of a, of a tonal shift from anything else score wise that we heard in the film. And it's like, okay, well I know why it's because she worked it into her contract that if she was going to be in this film, they had to use one of her songs. Okay, great. But at least like as a producer, like at least be like, okay, can we either choose a song that somehow fits the theme of the movie? Or can you, Hey, you're a great writer, write write a song for the film. And we'd be glad to play it. It's like they literally just grabbed one of her CDs, pulled. Oh, let's uh, track number seven. Perfect. Let's throw it on there. Uh, it just it's very odd, very odd. Um, and it's just in line with one more odd thing to add to a lot of the oddness of the film. Uh, but with that said, Roger, it, it, do I hate the film? No, I think there are some really good elements of the film. I am so intrigued to learn more about the backstories of the ghosts. They were the best part of the film, obviously. Um, I feel like I could have enjoyed this film a lot more if there was a different story involved. Like I just did not buy this family. Um, None of them were engaging or interesting to me. I would have liked to see these ghosts being able to do something a little bit different with a different set of people i don't know who who or why but i just could not get into this particular focal group of people for this film i still maintain yes the obnoxiousness of the editing at times really really bothered me i mean it's it's a fine film and i guess looking at it from your perspective of this was the first dvd you own back in 2001 i can see why you would have you know, a strong feelings and strong attachments to this. I think you are perfectly reasonable to put the, uh, the lawyer's death on your top three deaths because it really was fucking well done. I'm just going to leave it at, I cannot wait to see the TV series. If it does the backstory on the 13 ghosts and maybe it'll lead into something. Maybe if that TV series is successful, maybe it'll lead into another film that will satisfy kind of, what I want from a film with these particular ghosts. And it really wasn't this particular film, but I 
did enjoy their element of the film extremely uh, well from a horror fan's perspective, if that makes any sense. It's just I, the, the, the characters weren't doing it for me. I can completely agree on that note, Troy. Like, again, this film is one that I enjoy, I, I dare say, fueled off nostalgia alone, but there are a lot of things to really take away from this movie, I think. And you're right. You're absolutely right. The ghosts are the the main takeaway here. And I do think that, especially if you check out the um, the uh, the DVD bonus feature, the, the breakdown of the Black Zodiac, I think that's going to get you that much more excited because it's so much more detailed than you'd anticipate um, for each ghost and their backstory. So I am so pumped to see what they do with this new series that they're going to be launching because i think it's the perfect vehicle and yeah i would love to see a new take on 13 ghosts that maybe stayed true to this material and just built off of it um because i think there's something really great there i do think these characters are very boring um i think that they are very two-dimensional um, and it's not even the fault of the actors because we've seen each one of these performers do better in a different project. So I do think it kind of falls back on the direction, especially coming full circle and saying that this is from the same director of Ghost Ship. I think a lot of the flaws and the issues that you see in this film, you also see in Ghost Ship. And maybe that's why he only directed two features. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, I think there it's there think there's a reason why he he only directed two features. And you know what the two features they, though they have really great elements to them. Go ship the opening uh segment as we mentioned and what the positive we mentioned in this. I feel like as a maybe as a whole director he just doesn't have the cohesiveness to to make a a truly like satisfying film and it's just it's obvious in both films like he can do certain things really well but he's not really paying attention possibly to the actual like direction of of actors or whatnot but um yeah i like i said i don't hate this film roger it's not like i'm coming in like oh i can't why did you make me watch this i, I some great elements to it uh once i got past the initial like shock of of watching it the first time and kind of settled down into the subsequent viewings knowing what i was going to see it made it a little bit easier to swallow i still again there are elements i i hate the kalina character shift and all that stuff i felt like was uh, offensive and just like a slap in the face but i'm all about these fucking ghosts give me a sequel or a remake of this and i would be thrilled if somebody could do it right and give these ghosts like the right environment to wreak havoc in but I mean, Roger. Speaking of of sequels, <laughs> oh my! Should we reveal our uh, our pick for next week? Oh my goodness! I truly cannot wait. Uh, a film that I adore, and I know a lot of our fans do as well. And I think it's a film that has only gotten better with age. And I am so curious to hear what our listeners think when you announce this title i hope they respond i hope they make some commentary and make some dialogue on this because i want to get them excited i can't wait to hear what people think about it it's a film that when it first came out you know this we know that it 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 pretty much was a huge disappointment box office wise the fans just didn't go out to flock to see it 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 was it it probably came out a little bit too late in the canon although we realize now with the uh the, the the two films 
the two sequels that have come after that have been phenomenally successful at the box office that maybe it just wasn't the timing was right the marketing i don't think tapped into the the right audience for the film but what i do love roger is it really does seem like this film has gained a lot of respect and appreciation since it came out in you know in the last 10 years or so um particularly i've seen a lot of love for this film over the last year and people going back and revisiting it and realizing hey this is not as bad as it was made out to be when it first came out and we've covered the first three already and so i felt like you know what just need to keep going because this is a franchise that I really think is probably one of the strongest horror franchises out there. Um, So we are going to cover Wes Craven's last film, rest in peace. Scream four. My God, a personal favorite. I'm going to say it right now. It's one of my favorites in the franchise and I am proud to say it. And I'm going to go into the next review, making that a known fact. I'm not going to, I'm not going to play coy about it. I fucking love Scream 4. I think it's so underrated. Uh, And, you know, it's a shame that it kind of bombed when it did. But you're right. I love that it has formed a brand new following of fans who I think really appreciate it. And it's aged so well. And I was just going to say, and I think we're going to we're going to have such a great conversation about why it's gotten a resurgence in the last year. But I think you just, you nailed it. It aged well. And actually it's the film and the motive of the killer is more relevant now <laughs> than it was 10 years ago. I mean, this is a film, I think, particularly with the killer motivation was ahead of its time. Um, and I think that's why people are going back and responding to it because fuck, I mean, <laughs> it, it's so, it's so relevant, more relevant now. And it really makes a statement on social media and, you know, Instagram, Insta famous people being social media famous and what that means and how it's affected our society. And like I said, 10 years later, 12 years later, however, when did it come out? 2011. So about, you know, 10 years, 10 years ago, um, it's, it's almost even worse now than it was then. (laughs) So I cannot wait to have the conversation with you guys, uh, with you, Roger and, yeah, I want to hear our fans' opinions on Scream 4, and I want to hear your opinions, fans, on 13 Ghosts. What are your thoughts on it? Are, are you in line with me, Roger, or a little bit of both of us? Let us know in the comments. Let us know on social media. And like know. I said, give us give us a, a five-star review, and in that five-star review, ask a question and if we of one of us or both of us, and we'd be happy to address it in, 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 in an episode uh, or suggest a film for us and we'll give you a shout out. We just want to get those five star reviews higher. We, we're almost so close to 50 and check out our Patreon. Uh, and I think with that, Roger, I mean, I think that concludes this long awaited episode of 13 ghosts. Oh, finally, Troy, thank you for appeasing me listeners. Well, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy 13 ghosts. And with that being said, we'll see you next week for a fucking review of motherfucking scream Four. my God, I can't wait. Uh, I don't need friends. I need fans. That's why we need five-star reviews. That's going to become the new tagline for our podcast. We don't need friends. We need fans. (laughs) And with that, leave us a review. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. Good night.